Hello and welcome to the Equine Tipster podcast. This is the first episode. My name is Chris Bowers. I am the Equine Tipster. Over the following weeks and months and years, we're going to be discussing horse racing. We're going to be discussing all the fun aspects of it. Occasionally looking at the darker sides, problems with addiction, so on and so forth. Basically, I'm looking to entertain and uh, looking to have a generally good time on this channel. So it's the first time I've ever attempted a half hour podcast. I haven't tried just standing and speaking before. And if you can hear me pacing around, then uh, it's because I am stood up and I feel I'd probably be more comfortable like this. Now, I'll tell you a bit about me. Um, back in times past, I used to be a bookie. I used to work for Labrooks, I used to work for Betfred. Various companies tried to headhunt me. They were from Better Betting all the way through to William Hill. And I managed lots of different shops. I was a relief manager for a while. That was quite interesting. I've dealt with all kinds of customers and I've watched all kinds of customers place their bets. This has given me an interesting viewpoint um, where I can see what's sensible and what isn't. And I've studied the way that people bet that do actually make money. Because every shop has got uh, one or two customers who are monitored. And the reason they're monitored is because effectively they're detrimental to the business. And whilst it's good to have people in who the other customers can see winning, um, as one of my old bosses said, uh, it gives them hope. Um, once it gets beyond a certain point and starts damaging profits, um, then they do actually have to be restricted properly. Uh, because otherwise the book is just going to go out of business if enough people do it. So it's been, uh, it's been interesting. And I've been following racing for probably the best part of 20 years. When I started out, it was fantastic lights, Galileo, and uh, horses like this. I think Johannesburg was around, Nouvelle. So that was a very exciting season. And it's actually lovely looking back on it to have seen Galileo win the derby. Um, and just, just knowing what he went on to do. I mean, probably talking, in my opinion, the best sire in the world until he passed away. If you're talking the best sires in the world, you could probably talk about horses like Frankel, Dubawi, Pivotal, who sadly passed away recently. Um, Stormcats. Um, Tappet. I could just stand here listing names, to be honest, and I'm sure I've missed out something which you particularly like. Cody Bear is a really good one at the moment. Uh, Profitable is uh, another one coming through. There's loads of them. Um, because it's not just the old sires we should be looking out for, we should also be looking out for the new sires. Sires make the most enormous amount of difference when it comes to a racehorse. Now, it's interesting because a lot of the time you get a, a really strong um, sire and then usually the best part of the dam, which is the mother of the foal, um, that's going to be produced um, isn't as good as you'd expect but what they're looking for usually with the dam is actually the dam sire to try and get some of those genetics through uh, to me this does actually seem a bit cockeyed and some of the best horses um, have actually come from 
a brilliant dam, who had a brilliant sire, crossed with a brilliant sire. So lots of people just seem to look at the, the cross. I mean, say you've got, um, I don't know, let's go for Hafid, uh, Dubawi and Galileo in the same, in this, in, in the same fold. And that, that's amazing. That's fantastic. But in my opinion, it is slightly dependent upon the quality of the dam. And if the dam hasn't raced, it's hard to tell the actual quality. And you can look at it and go, oh yeah, it's a fantastic course. I'm sure it would have won if it had gone to the racetrack. But we're never going to know whether it was good on soft, whether it was good on hard ground, whether it likes your weather, how it is um, with its two-year-old progeny, etc., etc. So, what I would say is always have a look at the dam as well as the dam sire. It can reveal some very interesting information. You can actually have a, a dam coming from the side and the side being absolutely fantastic on say hard ground. And the dam might absolutely hate it. And it might be partly to do with herb breeding. You know, so yeah, have a look at all the ingredients of the fold, not just the one sire, not just the strongest sire, as some people would say, the undiluted sire. Now, the reason it makes a difference is all horses are not equal, as you know, you watch racing, you know there's horses that can't even get into class seven, you know there's horses who, if there was another group above one, might possibly be racing in that one. So, the object of the breeder is to work out um, the best combination in order to produce the best horse, because every breeder is basically trying to up upgrade um, the breed, um, is trying to continue certain aspects of it which are desirable and get rid of aspects that are not. And it's actually, for some people, a hobby in itself, looking at the genetics of horses and looking how they've come about and looking at what the future might hold. Um, there's some people who just back the progeny of certain horses. Some people would just be looking in the same way that somebody might look at Charlie Appleby as a trainer. Some people might be looking at Frankel and thinking, okay, just going to follow Frankel's progeny. And uh, you'll excuse me if I just have a small cup of coffee. Not the entire thing, obviously, because I'd be talking like this and it'd be really, really fast. And I'd run out of things to say really, really quickly. But yeah, some people do actually follow the size. Um, now what I find is actually a good idea is to learn about a few sires to so quality, have them in mind when you're looking down the race card. If you spot something by Dubawi, for instance, you know it's going to be good over a mile, it's going to be good over a mile two, a mile four, once it gets to a mile six it might start to struggle a little bit. But then you've got Galileo, not really much point in backing Galileo under a mile, although occasionally you can pull off something like seven furlongs. Um, he wasn't about speed. Not outright speed like a sprinter. So you'd be looking at races um, a mile's about the minimum for a Galileo, <laughs> really. Um, but it will go up all the way to mile six, um, St. Ledger, whereas the Dubois uh, won't necessarily get a mile six. So you can see that um, there, there is a difference between them. I mean, if you look at Kodiak, for instance, Kodiak is brilliant over five, six, seven furlongs and can be good up to a mile. So if you wanted 
um, a horse to um, be running over a mile, then you'd probably want something that was a mixture of a good sprinter and a good middle distance horse, or just two middle distance horses that would get over a mile. And that way you can kind of continue it on, but there's no point breeding um, something like um, Galileo with Le Havre and expecting really, really fast, really fast um, animals. It's probably not going to happen. Um, but you could get something like a um, Kodiak and Pivotal, and then you've got something really fast going on. Um, they do leave it um, in terms of say there was a horse who was by Galileo, then they won't breed that with another one that was directly from Galileo. They usually leave it a generation or two um, to make sure there's no deformities, no weirdness or anything like that happen. Um, otherwise, uh, I don't know the best way to describe it, but I imagine the gene pool's slightly too, too small in that case, and uh, anything bad that's going to happen is more likely to crop up. So who do I follow? Who do I look at when I look down the cards? Well, if I spot Cody Bear, I always have a look at the horse. Um, Cody Bear is absolutely fantastic. Um, Go Bears Go is probably one of his best, um, if not his best. Um, came second at the Breeders' Cup by a very small margin over five furlongs this year. Um, nearly won a couple of Group 1s, uh, when I think it was Group 2 or Group 3 railway stakes. And those horses tend to be sprinters. Um, Cody Bear's horses tend to be sprinters. Um, they can, they've got great acceleration and they've got a very uh, muscular build normally if you look at them. Um, they look like real athletes once they've come across the line. And who else do I look at? I look at Galileo. And uh, Galileo uh, provides quality to whatever joining there is. And uh, Galileo, uh, I said a little bit about him earlier, but I, I do pay note if there's a Galileo. I pay note if there's a Dubawi. Uh, Frankel, absolutely fantastic animal. Um, Frankel was, I think, as far as I remember, the highest officially rated horse of, uh, on the flat of all time. Um, he was an absolute, or is rather, an absolute beast on the track. Um, fantastic, still going strong, lots of progeny left to give. Um, who else do I have a look at when I go down? Um, if there's a Deep Impact, I have a look. Um, deep Impact is particularly good. And uh, that tends to be kind of middle distances, up to about a mile four. And I like Profitable. Have a quick look if Profitable's there. I haven't quite worked out what Profitable is best at yet because the thing about sire, you've got to think, well, is this a sire which has been producing for a huge amount of time or is this a sire who's just started? You're going to get more information about the sire which has been going for some time. When you look at the stats, you'll be able to see whether it's progeny are generally good at um, well, what distances they're good at. You'll be able to see on what types of surface they like. For instance, um, if something's by Street Cry, he's another one I look out for, you know it's going to be absolutely brilliant on the all-weather because I've, I've looked and I'm seeing and I've looked at the stats for the all-weather and I can see that it performs brilliantly. But if there isn't enough there 
to get a good idea, then what other stats can we look at? Or even if there is a lot of stats there, there is another useful stat. The useful stat is when you look at the two-year-olds, because on the racing post, um, when you look at the, the put in the stats section as a two-year-old section, and look across and look to see the percentage of two-year-olds that have won from the amount of two-year-olds that have tried running, and also look at um, the amount of two-year-old winners versus two-year-old runners from the selection that has won. And you'll begin to see that actually some sires have a distinct advantage with their two-year-olds because the two-year-olds are basically stronger. Because not all two-year-olds develop at the same rate. Um, some of them um, are quite weedy and can grow into like really big animals. And some of them just start off playing big. I mean, look at Native Trail. He's almost as big as um, Adia. He's pretty much the same size as Benman. I mean, they're going to have to start making the stores bigger soon, to be honest. So, you look at this stat, and you'll see that some horses have got a low percentage for their two-year-olds, and some have got a higher. So, you can come to the opinion that, say, um... 20% of horses that have won by Frankel uh, win for every time they run, then you can, you can see that basically that's going to be a stronger bunch of two-year-olds something, than something that's got, say, a percentage of nine or ten. It just means they're stronger animals. So at the start of the season, when there is no form, this is when sires actually come into that home. And you can look down the list and you can think, okay, these two-year-olds are likely to be stronger than these two-year-olds because as much as we think to ourselves, ah, this trainer will have this horse out absolutely perfect. He's got great training facilities at home, etc., etc. We don't actually know unless we've seen the horse, unless we've heard something from the jockey, unless we've heard something possibly from the trainer. And is it hyperbole when we do, you know? You've got to come and decode trainers, haven't you? So, um, also, you've got to think um, there are specialist um, sires for certain distances, as I've said, but also over the jumps. Um, there are certain sires who are absolutely brilliant at breeding chasers, and there are ones that are absolutely brilliant at breeding hurdlers. And this all takes time to figure out, or takes time to decode. The best thing to do is when you um, a backed horse, and then you look to see who it was by, then you can find out a bit of information about the, um, about the sire, you know, and you can think the well, next time, okay, this horse won, which I backed before, so maybe I need to look at it again in a little more detail because it's got the same sire, you know, just simple really. Um, some of the best night breeding operations are directly or indirectly connected to stables. I think it's, um, I always get these two rounds the wrong way around, so don't shoot me if I get it wrong. Uh, Coolmore, for instance, supplies Ballydoyle, which is Aiden O'Brien. Uh, Dubawi supplies um, Gosden, supplies Appleby, Sayyid bin Sarul. And you, you'll notice that one of Charlie Appleby's secrets and one of Aiden O'Brien's secrets is having some of the 
best horses, some of the best bred horses that money can buy, that you can even imagine. If you can imagine an amazing combination of horse, the chances are they would have thought of it and they would have tried breeding it. It's just phenomenal. <laughs> it's just phenomenal the ammo they're giving Charlie Appleby at the moment, in particular. Um, if William Buick is on one of Charlie Appleby's runners, which hasn't run before, there's a fair chance it's going to do pretty well. So that was talking about sires. And uh, I wonder how long I've been talking, a whole 16 minutes. So quite pleased about that. Have a small drink of coffee and then I'll continue. Bear with me. Right. So what are we going to talk about next? Oh. One thing I've been looking at recently is reports of bad behaviour on the race course and reports of um, families not necessarily feeling welcome and um, attendance is being down. Now, I haven't been to the races for a few years now. Um, it's probably been about three or four. The last time I went was actually Cheltenham. But what I'd say is if people are being allowed to take narcotics onto course, such as um, cannabis, um, cocaine, um, and so on and so forth, I'm not going to go into the big list because there's no point, um, but if people are taking these things onto course, that's not necessarily a good atmosphere for other people to be around in. Um, you really don't want to be around people who have taken too much cocaine. You don't, as a family, or anyone really, um, you don't want to be walking across the course and smell something dodgy that somebody's smoking. Um, it almost kind of lowers the tone a bit and it just makes everything seem a bit more dodgy. Um, this isn't the impression which um, people need to get on their first time on the race course. So I don't know if they're doing it now, but would it really be a bad idea just to have a couple of sniffer dogs at the entrances? Then you can stop people bringing it in to start with. That just makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, surely it'd be worthwhile for the police when you think about it. Um, stop the trouble before it begins. Um, it's good for the race course, again, stop the trouble before it begins. <clears throat> and then we come down to race course drinking. Now, drinking is uh, something which a lot of us do. And uh, when we go to the races, we get excited and we want to have a few drinks, and that's absolutely fine, but there comes a point. You know when the next drink that you're going to have is the one that's going to make you be silly, or the one that's going to tip you over the edge, or anything like that. So the trick is, I think, to just not have that drink. There's no need. Um, usually, race meetings end uh, um, before the evening has started, so you can always go out afterwards. So, in order to enjoy your day for longer, just don't drink so much on track. I went to a nightclub in Italy once, which had an interesting system. Now, when you went in, uh, you had a card, and on the card, um, there was a certain amount of spaces which a bartender could um, like stamp. And the idea was, every drink you had, you got a stamp on your card. And once your card was full, you can go get any more drinks. And yes, people can game that. <laughs> people are intelligent. <clears throat> but at the same time, 
it was a very well behaved nightclub. It was absolutely fantastic. In fact, there was barely any trouble for the whole evening. No, that probably isn't the answer. But there has to be some sort of answer to the problem of people just going a bit too crazy on course. I mean, effectively, another problem is that food on course can be horrendously expensive. Um, last time I went racing, uh, we went to Cheltenham and it was the best mate enclosure, which, no offence to Cheltenham, <clears throat> the locals call the cabbage patch. And the, the food, oh my God, it was like eight pounds for a burger. Eight pounds. Now, if I pay eight pounds for a burger, I want that to be the, the best burger in the entire world. I want it to come from the happiest cows that have ever walked the planet. I want it to have the freshest tomatoes Italy has ever produced. And what I really want, if I paid eight pounds for a burger, is service. I just want somebody to say, hi, you having a good day? Here's your burger, thanks. Something similar. I'm just like, yeah, number four, there you go. <laughs> and I realise they're busy. But even so. And then we get on to the wildly priced beer. <laughs> now, you could argue that people uh, might be put off by the higher prices. But I would say they're probably not. They just take it as part of the cost of the race course. Or sorry, of going to the race course. So they will actually spend a bit more money than they would normally. Interestingly, uh, looking at Kempton. <clears throat> uh, yesterday or the day before. There was a very low attendance and one of the problems is obviously you've got COVID concerns but you've also got the, the cost of doing things once you're actually on the course and um, you've got rumors of bad behavior etc etc so i mean what could captain do i don't know but another problem is that racing never really stares in the face is it's a sport which runs every day. Now, most people work like five days a week at least. So that automatically limits down the audience for a weekday fixture or an evening fixture because people finish where they're tired. They don't necessarily want to go out racing. Um, people would have to have a day off in the week to go racing and the idea of getting enough people with the same day off in order to go racing it's quite difficult to organize really so one of the problems which we're probably facing is just the fact that people are working when this is on and i know that um cheltenham recently i think at the start of the at the start of the I say the start of the jump season that happened all summer um but cheltenham at the start of the jump season um, actually move some of their better races onto the Saturdays so people could um, see them on the TV. And yeah, that, that's good. But then you get a lower quality field, or lower quality fields or lower quality races happening on the Friday. And then anyone who did have the Friday off, it's like, what's going on? So there needs to be some kind of um, continuity when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, it's not generally too expensive to get into the different sections, considering what you're actually receiving, the entertainment you're going to have. Um, that's absolutely fine. But another thing that struck me about Campton was the emptiness of the betting ring. Now, you're looking at a modern society who likes things to happen straight away, okay? And 
because they like things to happen straight away, a lot of people, before they go racing, that I've talked to, they place their bets before they get to the course so that they don't have to queue up. Because you can actually end up running around quite a bit. And if you've got to like put a bet on each time the races, you maybe want to get a drink every so often the races, if you've got to help you find a toilet at the races, um, then yeah, you can end up running around quite a bit. And there may not be time every time, really, to do all these things. So people tend to place their bets before they go and they may play some tote bets when they're there. You know, the odd exactor, a bit of a place pop, that kind of thing. But everything can be done on the phone. So unless the bookmakers are actually offering a better service, then it's not really going to work out. And what kind of service can you give somebody that's going to beat the idea of queuing? Because no one wants to queue. Um, you can work on a greed angle. You could actually just boost the prices slightly on course, but that's not fair to the bookers because they're going to be losing more money overall in terms of their percentages. So percentage profit's going to go down from, what, say, 20% down to maybe 15, 14 if they do that, and there may not be enough them to actually survive um, in their business. Another problem on race courses is facilities. I, I find it hard to describe how awful the toilets were in the best mate area last time I went. It was absolutely appalling. Um, it wasn't the cleanliness, it was the design and the amount of them and the amount of time you had to wait. And if you're a lady, um, you had to wait even longer because there wasn't enough facilities. Now, come on guys, the toilets are basic. Race courses earn a lot of money. Just build some more toilets. It's not like you haven't got land, you know? Really? Right. <clears throat> so, in short, for the race courses, <laughs> build new toilets. Have your drinks more attractively priced. Have hospitality with a smile and don't overprice the hospitality. Make it so there's less trouble on course and just a little bit more of a family atmosphere and you will get attendances up. Um, this isn't meant to be negative because there's just so many things that can be done by so many people with good creative ideas. All kinds of things which are just to help racing in general. So, what have I been doing recently? Well, I've been writing a draw bias guide for Wolverhampton and it's been very interesting. Um, it really makes you think because everyone's got an idea in their head of how the draw works at certain courses. But then you spend time actually sat down looking at it and you begin to spot some very interesting things indeed. And different distances, of course, they've got different places where they start on the course. They've got different characteristics. And it's all very interesting trying to work out um, why one stall is more successful than another. And there are people that say, well, statistical analysis of the draw bias is fundamentally flawed. And what I say to them is, you're correct, it, is, it always will be. Um, the draw sample, sorry, the, the sample of st statistics which you're working from simply isn't enough to give a proper um, idea of what's going on most of the time. You can make hypotheses from it, um, you can make theses from it, you can study it all you want to, but the more results which have happened, then the more likely you are to be able to work out what's going to happen next. And the other thing to consider about the draw is how does it change when it rains? How does it change when there's hard ground? 
How does it change when it's just two year olds racing? How does it change when um, it's claimers and uh, classified races and so on and so forth? And so what I thought is, I'm going to look at unadjusted draws. So I'm not changing everything around depending upon the amount of runners. I'm just looking at the individual stores. Um, not looking at two year olds or um, any races which aren't just normal handicaps or normal stakes, kind of ordinary jockeys, and basically um, looking at. Um, so there's another factor I put on there, I'm just trying to think what it is. I can't remember the minute, it's unimportant, but either way, I, I put things on there to try and make it a result of what the best jockeys and horses or rather what the jockeys who know what they're doing and the horses who know what they're doing achieve. And then I can see what the other horses who aren't like that, or the other jockeys aren't like that, they're trying to obtain. So that allows me to see basically um, the best vantage point of what's going on. If anyone does want to um, purchase my Wolverhampton draw guide for two pounds, and two pounds is less than a cup of coffee, and if it wins you more than two pounds over the rest of your lifetime, you've, you've made profit, then two pounds is not hard to win at the end of the day. And if you would like this draw guide, which is about 4,000 words, then you can go to equinetipster.com backslash store and you'll see it in the inventory. So I did manage to talk for half an hour. Um, it's completely surprised me. I hope it's been entertaining. Um, I hope I've made some of you smile, I hope I've given some kind of um, food for thought and see if we can get some special guests and things like that in the future. So thank you very much for listening to me, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, this has been the Equine Tips the Podcast and my name is Chris Bowers.